This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we are considering the implications of the story of the tabernacle in our own pursuits of God. And today, we don't have a particular text outside of the story of the tabernacle itself. It's somewhat of a continuation of what we covered in our last episode, uh, but it's more of a study in spiritual practices. And we do have a presentation that goes along with the topic, uh, so you'll find a link to that in the show notes, and you can follow along as Marty teaches us how to... Um, practice our spirituality. Yeah. So we're going to dive deeper into this idea, the story of the tabernacle. Um, This story for me sets up uh, a larger conversation that I've always, I just um, love teaching this lesson to my students. And this, uh, I feel like this lesson impacts their lives, uh, particularly college students and their lives more than and really many other disciplines, any other, any other t- lessons, excuse me, that I, I teach. So uh, really just love this one. So um, we kind of left off this discussion of the tabernacle, talking about how it's kind of like this mobile Genesis one. And uh, man, I, got, I guess we should probably like review a little bit because that's a staple of ours, right? Yeah. What, what do you mean? Genesis one? What's the, what's the big deal? Yeah, why exactly. do we need a mobile Genesis? Yeah, one? Why do we need it? Because that's where the story starts, right? So we've talked about Genesis, making sure we start in the beginning and uh, starting in the beginning is really important. So um, at the beginning, God says that creation is good and invites creation to trust that, particularly mankind. And, and I don't know if warning is the right word, but kind of the, the warning God gives us, if you don't trust, if you, he tells Cain this, if you don't trust, if you don't do what's right, if you don't believe that creation is good, you're going to try to find that fulfillment somewhere else. And you're going to take it from other people and you're going to do really stupid things because you're going to live out of fear and security and self-preservation. And, and uh, so he's trying to teach, he's trying to frame, he's trying to give us a new way to view the world, a counter narrative, if you will, um, to the narrative that we naturally want to believe and tell. And, uh, and he finally finds a, a family starting with a guy by the name of Avram finally finds a family that, that will, will give this thing a go and they'll trust it. They're going to make a bunch of mistakes. That is just a part of our human existence, making mistakes. Um, but this group of people, they make mistakes, they learn from those mistakes and they decide not to be defined by those mistakes. And they're not going to let those mistakes keep them trapped in fear and they're going to keep moving. And so this family of God ends up teaching us what it looks like on a really basic level. We call that the introduction, uh, Genesis 12 through 50. And this group of people is going to, to teach us what it looks like to follow God. And that sets up the narrative. And we talked about the narrative beginning in Exodus, which we finish up today. This will be our last podcast for the book of Exodus. Um, but the Exodus of God going, or the Exodus of God, yeah, the narrative of God uh, starts in the book of Exodus. It's going to go all the way through the book of Revelation. And it is the narrative that we live in today. And we spoke of it as the narrative of two kingdoms, a tale of two kingdoms. And you have empire and shalom in constant tension in this world, the world that we live in, and the world of the Bible. And you have empire, this this narrative of fear, of coercion, of a particular kind of imperial power, of wealth, of security, of fame. Uh, and then on the flip side, you have shalom. And rather than fear and coercion, you have invitation and trust. You have open hands rather than closed fists. Uh, you just have a, a counter narrative that runs counter to what God, uh, to what the world is is trying to show us. So uh, that sets up kind of where we're at. So we're going to wrap up Exodus today by taking this idea of the tabernacle, the final almost 20 chapters of Exodus, go over the construction of the tabernacle. And I remember my teacher, um, we talked last week in last week's podcast about uh, 
this Genesis, this this Genesis one story, kind of being carried along in the tabernacle. This tabernacle is, in a sense, this mobile Genesis one. And I remember as he was talking about the creation of the tabernacle getting wrapped up, and we we spoke of we we quoted. Uh, some of the Exodus passages that really seem to echo quite directly the Genesis passages. And um, I remember Ray, uh, when I was learning this in the desert of Paran uh, over in, in Israel, I remember, I remember him saying it was almost as if the first time uh, in the creation story, God created the space and then he said, you fill it, go be fruitful and multiply. Um, so the first time God created the space and said, you fill it, and that didn't work out so well. We kind of messed that story up. The world kind of descended into chaos. Uh, so this time what God says in this retelling of creation is this time I want you to create the space and I'll fill it. And uh, that was kind of the driving idea. And and from that, I kind of internalized a lesson. And it's it's a lesson that you could definitely argue is not in the text, is not directly in the text, but it's one that I've carried with me nonetheless. Um, and that is that if you create the space, uh, God will fill it. And uh, Ray, on the videos we've been recommending, Ray actually does have a, a lesson called Creating a Space. Um, and, and it's in there. He does a little different stuff with it than I'm going to do. But that idea is in there nonetheless. But uh, I have a belief in an indirect promise. I don't like to make a lot of promises that aren't directly stated in the scripture, but I believe that God, um, that there's an indirect promise for us. And that is that if we will create the space for God, God will fill it. Um, he may not fill it the way we want him to fill it. He may not fill that space, uh, in the, in the time that we would want him to fill it. He may not do with that space, what we would desire him to do with that space. But if we will create the space for God, God will fill it. And I think one of the things we struggle with in our culture of not just busyness, but just constant activity and a high-grade cultural anxiety, I think Walter Brueggemann uh, calls it, uh, we have this spiritual anxiety um, that we deal with. We watched a video in the discussion group about that. Um, but this this uh, l- this low-grade or even high-grade spiritual anxiety Uh, And we just run and we run and we run. And then we wonder, we kind of shake our fist at the heavens and we say, God, why aren't you more present in my life? Why does God feel so distant? One of the things I tell my students is if we're not going to create a space for God, I don't know how in the world we could be upset when God doesn't fill it, fill our lives. Like we have to be willing to create a space. If we're not going to create a space, uh, why in the world would God shout through the mess and the just the the dense foliage of our life to get our attention like why would he why would he fight through all of that if we're not going to be willing to take a little bit of time to create that space that kind of feels like elijah there where you know you expect god to be in the thunder or the fire or whatever. and it's like no god's god's in that still small voice right and so if you don't have a quiet space where you can hear a voice that small absolutely how are you going to hear it? Absolutely. We have to create these spaces. And so one of the ways that we've done that as Christians for uh, thousands of years now is we've had what we call the spiritual practices or the spiritual disciplines. And um, and these have ended up changing my life. So I wanted to uh, talk about the story of Bill. 
Bill was uh, one of my mentors. I had two mentors that shaped my life in incredible ways. Uh, they make a very, very short list of people in my life. Uh, one was a guy by the name of Steve Edwards. Uh, he taught me unbelievable things about how to love people and uh, and what integrity looked like when it came to the yoke of Jesus, loving God, loving others. And then there was another guy. His name was Bill Westfall. Um, and uh, and he shaped my life in, in big, big ways. Uh, Bill was the president uh, before me of Impact Campus Ministries. Um, and... Uh, and uh, uh, privileged to follow in his footsteps. But I remember long before I was working for Impact, um, I remember Bill, I was pastoring a church in Boise, Idaho, and uh, and Bill was trying to mentor me and teach me <laughs> this young, uh, early 20s, know-it-all, punk, me. And I remember Bill coming to me, and Bill was kind of like... Um, I think even some of his descriptions on his avatars and different things on social media, he'll describe himself as a mixture between a Jedi and a monk. Um, And that really uh, does describe who Bill is, especially in my life. He had this unbelievable spiritual wisdom. He was unbelievably spiritually present uh, as a mentor, not just present in my life, but he he was spiritually present wherever he was at. And he was trying to teach me this, but I was too young and too naive and too busy and too wound up to, to understand that. So I remember him coming to me one day. I remember him saying, you know, I, I, had, a, I had a challenge for you, but, um, you know, never mind you. You can't. Yeah, never mind you. You won't be able to do it. And of course, me, being the type of guy I was, I was like, what? What? You got a challenge for me, but you don't think I can do it? No, no, no. You're going to tell me. Like, you're going to tell me. And he's like, no, I don't. I, you know, the more I thought about it, I just don't think, I don't think it's for you. I don't think you could really really pull it off. And I'm like, Oh no, no, we're going to, we're going to do this thing. So you're going to tell me what the challenge is. So I remember him telling me, uh, I lived by a lake. I lived in Nampa, Idaho. I lived out by Lake Lowell. I remember, uh, Bill telling me, I want you to, I want you to take a Bible and a sack lunch and I want you to go sit by the lake. And I'm like, okay. And then what, what do you want me to do? He's like, I want you to do nothing for eight hours. I want you to go sit by the lake for eight hours. I want you to have a Bible. I want you to have a lunch. And I just want you to sit there for eight hours. And I remember going, what in the world are you talking about? That is the dumbest, biggest. And he's like, see, I told you, told you it really wasn't for you. Like you couldn't really do it. And I'm like, oh no, I'm going to do it. So just to prove him wrong, I grabbed my sack lunch and my Bible. I went out to Lake Lowell that weekend on a Saturday. And uh, I remember, I remember that practice like absolutely changing my life. Like somewhere around the four hour, four and a half, five hour mark. I remember for the first time, maybe ever, like my brain and my heart, like finally emptying themselves of just nonstop activity and, and hearing what you just talked about, that still small voice. And at that point I was absolutely hooked. Um, and, and Bill went through this process for the next few years of giving me different books to read, different things to study, and really training me, um, in a sense, mentoring me, training me in what it meant to pursue God through the practices. And essentially, he never described it as such, but this is how I describe it to this day. He, he taught me how to create space for God. And when I would create that space for God, uh, God has always filled it. And and then at that later, I ended up working for Impact. Now, if this starts to sound a little bit like a commercial for Impact Campus Ministries, it kind of is. Not that I intend it to be a commercial, but I love the organization that I work for. I love our vision. And, uh, and for me, it drives a lot of this conversation. Um, but uh, Impact Ministries, our, our, our mission statement ends up being to pursue 
model, and teach intimacy with God. Impact Campus Ministries exists to pursue, model, and teach intimacy with God. And for us, that starts with pursue. I remember the first time I heard Bill tell me that, I thought that is the dumbest purpose statement, mission statement I've ever heard. Like that is such a cop-out. Like what a vague way to just Christianize. Uh, But what I ended up finding through Bill and what he showed me and modeled for me um, was what this looks like when you actually live it out. And so for us here at Impact, uh, creating a space for God is what it means to pursue God. We pursue God by intentionally pursuing the spiritual practices. Um, That's what it means to pursue God. We create space for him. And uh, I love our statement of, uh, we have a definition of success. And that's one of the next slides on your um, presentation there. But I love this. I love reading this. Uh, gets me all mess- all jacked up whenever I read this. It's good. Success is developing intimacy with God and community with each other through a living relationship with Jesus. We believe that an individual who is developing intimacy with God in the context of Christian community will make an impact for the kingdom of God. A team of individuals who makes an impact for the kingdom of God will have a fruitful ministry. Though we do not aim for making an impact, and we do not aim for fruitful ministries, we recognize that these two situations will supernaturally occur when individuals develop intimacy with God in Christian community. Ministry is the product of our love for God, an expression of a heart devoted to God. We must not allow ministry for God to crowd intimacy with God out of our lives. We, t- we cannot control making an impact and we cannot control fruitful ministries, but we have absolute control over developing intimacy with God and being devoted to one another. Um, one of the things I just loved about this definition of success was it hung, it, we, we hang this on John 15, where Jesus says, you can do nothing unless you abide in me. Apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And so you have to remain in me. You have to create a space. You have to, you have to pursue me in such a way uh, that I can speak and I can move and I can fill your empty life full of this power that only I can fill it with. So um, we had this just incredible uh, definition that I just loved of we cannot control whether or not our lives are fruitful. And how much ministry, um, how much of our efforts is really us running around trying to control how fruitful our life is. We try to control results that at the end of the day, you and I can't control. But if what Jesus said was true, then if we focus on what we can control, uh, God gets to decide all the rest. He gets to decide how fruitful our lives are, how that fruit is born, and what happens with all of it. And so um, that's what we're talking about here. Uh, When we think about the tabernacle and the fact that God's people made a space and then Uh, God filled it. We can do the same thing in our lives. If we create space, God gets to fill it. And so we have spiritual disciplines. Um, Now there are two spiritual disciplines that have always been at the top of the Christian to-do list. In our modern era, we talk about two spiritual disciplines more than anything else, and they are Bible study and prayer. Uh, We do that. And it's not that those aren't important. It's not at all that I would want those things to fall off. Obviously, Bema is Bible study. Uh, obviously prayer is central to who we are, uh, no doubt about that. But those are kind of like the only two practices you ever hear church talk about on a regular basis is Bible study and prayer. 
we never really dig into exactly how to do the whole prayer thing. We just kind of all assume that everybody kind of knows what it is. Uh, and the spiritual practices kind of get us, uh, give us a little bit more options. So I want to kind of go through a list here of spiritual practices. Now, what's really important here to know is that our job is not to do this whole list. I can't remember how many are on the list I'm going to share with you today, but there's a few handfuls. Uh, our goal is not to do all of these. There's no way we could do that. That's, that's not, that's not practical. It's not the goal. That's not what I'm trying to suggest. What I'm trying to suggest is there are many, many, many different ways that throughout Christian history, we have created space for God and routinely seen and experienced God fill those kinds of spaces. I want to talk about some of those options. And I think a healthy, maturing follower of Jesus, uh, has a few of these practices at work in their life all the time. I think somebody who is spiritually mature is engaging at least a few of these disciplines routinely in their life. And that's how God works because they've created a space and God fills it. Now, ultimately God gets to do whatever he wants to do. So God does, uh, (laughs) glory to him. He does fight through all of our busyness And he works in spite of us all the time. Um, But I think he's inviting us to something a whole lot bigger and a whole lot better uh, than asking him to do that. So the first four practices I have on here are just different practices of prayer. Uh, And I like to go through these so that my students can learn uh, what these are. Sometimes people have just never told them about these practices. The first one is prayer journaling. By the way, uh, can you remember, Brent, how I feel about the prayer disciplines? Uh they're a struggle. They are an immense struggle for me. Like I am, my mom, oh my goodness, is an incredible prayer warrior. I have met unbelievable prayer warriors and I know that prayer warriors hate it when we call them prayer warriors, but here's what I know. I know that I struggle with prayer. Uh, My theology gets in the way of my prayer. My experience gets in the way of my prayer. The way that I'm wired mentally and intellectually gets in the way of my prayer. Um, I struggle with the disciplines of prayer. I try to work them into my life. I try to learn from them. I try to go, grow from them. Um, but I don't want to come off as a prayer expert as I talk about these. Because the first one, prayer journaling, oh my goodness. I've had so many mentors tell me about the importance of journaling, prayer journaling. And uh, I've, even, I've even been a part of the benefits of prayer journaling. I have prayer journaled before, and I've seen unbelievable benefits from prayer journaling, and I still struggle with the practice. It's just so difficult. But prayer journaling is pretty straightforward. It's keeping that journal. Um, it's being able to write out those prayers to God or or even just journal. Like some people get hung up on the language of prayer. Like, dear God, X, Y, and Z, thanks, amen. Like that's not even a required formula. It's just journaling your life in such a way prayerfully that you get to see what God's doing over the course of a month or a year or a season or an era of your life. I can go back in my prayer journals to those seasons where I have practiced journaling, and I'm amazed at the places that God's taken me and the things that God's done. Um, It's just really neat to be able to go back. So prayer journaling for some people is a massive, massive discipline. Uh, The next one, fixed hour prayer. Uh, I know in Impact, when we get together for our all-staff conferences, we always practice fixed-hour prayer. Uh, We have somebody set an alarm on their phone for 9 a.m., noon, 3 p.m., 6 p.m., and 9 p.m. Now, if you're a part of a true monastic community, like if you're at a monastery, they'll they'll even go off at 
3 a.m. and 6 a.m. and they'll just go off every three hours. They have what they call the daily office is sometimes what you will hear fixed hour prayer called. Um, but some people just like the routine of that. That alarm goes off. It doesn't have to be some big elaborate thing. You don't have to get all super spiritual or anything like that. But that alarm goes off and you, you just recite the Lord's Prayer. Or that alarm goes off and you just bow your head and, 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 and offer just a quick prayer or maybe a long prayer. But you stop whatever you're doing for at least 30 seconds and just recognize the presence of God and whisper that prayer to him. Fixed hour prayer. Um, it's a pretty, pretty amazing how that shows up and works in our life when that alarm goes off and we go, okay, apparently I'm going to stop what I'm doing for two seconds um, and, and just acknowledge what's going on. And obviously that's not real practical for some of us and the jobs that we have, different things like that. But it's a discipline. It's a discipline that's available to us. Uh, the next one, contemplative prayer. Ooh, it's getting a little mystical. Getting a little Eastern up in here. But contemplative prayer, especially for those of us that are, that are um, there's a mystic hiding inside of us. There are some of us that are wired that way. Uh, I know I, I've got a little bit of that inside of me. I, I never know how to talk about it because I'm far too cerebral as a teacher. But I know I've experienced um, contemplative prayer. Um, one of the most famous contemplative prayers would be uh, uh, what they call the Jesus, the centering prayer. Um, Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, it is incredibly um, cathartic, uh, therapeutic. It's, a, it's, an, it's an incredible centering exercise. If you're ever sitting down for, if you're just going to sit on that deck, nice cup of coffee, overlooking the canyon. I remember I grew up on the Snake River Canyon. And you're going to stay out there for an afternoon, just have a prayerful afternoon. One of the ways that I can get my heart right and get myself centered for a, a time of prayer and reflection is to use contemplative prayer. Just repeat that over and over again. Jesus Christ, Son of God. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's amazing how that prayer, you say that 40 times, that prayer starts to talk back to you. <laughs> like you can actually just start to think of the different parts of it. Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. Jesus Christ. Son of God. Have mercy. Oh, mercy. What do I need mercy for? Like you're having these. By the time you're done, contemplative prayer has drawn you into this centering place where you're starting to, like the prayer itself uh, is just, uh, <laughs> the prayer itself starts to speak back to you. Um, I know when my disciples come over for breakfast, they, we get together for breakfast every morning at 7 a.m. And I say the same Jewish blessing after the meal every single morning. And I know for some of them, it's like, oh my goodness, like say another blessing. But what I love about saying the same blessing every single morning is that blessing starts to talk back to me. It's not, it really stops becoming about me uttering the blessing. And now all of a sudden that blessing starts to do work back in my own heart because I say the same thing every morning. And so all of a sudden those words start talking back to me. Uh, I start to notice things and, and I start to get things. It's, it's more of a conversation. Contemplative prayer has a way of, of doing that. And then praying the text. Uh, I think one of the things that the Jewish faith would have to teach us would be praying the text. Um, a lot of Jewish prayers, many Jewish prayers come straight out of the text, especially the Psalms. Uh, I think in a lot of ways, um, some Jews might look at the typical Christian experience with prayer and the practice of prayer, and they might say, 
that's pretty that's pretty um uh, flippant you're talking to god like he's your homeboy you're talking to god like and i think that's something that's beautiful about the christian tradition i we had a we had a staff person with impact that's no longer working with us but her name was amy and uh Amy used to always pray, and every time she would pray, she would say, Papa God, dear Papa God, Papa God. I used to love that about Amy. Now, if you were to, <laughs> if you were to have that kind of flippant conversation in an Orthodox Jewish setting, I think people would be all up in arms, like how you're dealing with the creator of the universe. You're calling him Papa God. Uh, now, I love that about the Christian tradition. I'm not critiquing that at all. But I do think that one of the things that Jews have to teach us is the fact that God's already spoken. Like, we don't have to necessarily always have something to say to God. But you can pull out that Bible, you can grab a psalm, and you can realize that God's already spoken to you and others have already spoken to God, and you can use that text as your prayer. You can use that text to start a conversation, but you can pray text. And in the typical Jewish world, they would have prayed text because they already had prayers to pray. And they wanted those prayers. It's like the blessing I just talked about that I say every morning after my food, um, after I eat. Uh, that prayer is ready for me. It's already been written. And I'm joining in the the prayer that's been said for centuries and centuries and centuries. I'm just praying the text. So lots of different ways to pray. Some of us just love to pray. Some of us don't need any instruction. Just sit down, pray away. Some people just love it. And then there's people like me. And uh, I'll take a little bit of liturgy. I'll take a little bit of structure. I'll take a little bit of contemplation. That helps me. It helps me pray. Um, So anyway, those are some prayer disciplines. I'm going to jump over to my favorite section. These are the disciplines that I love. I would call these maybe um, disciplines of presence. Disciplines of presence. My favorite one uh, is the first one. Solitude, Sabbath, and silence. This is what Bill taught me when he told me to take that Bible and a lunch and go out to the lake. What he was telling me to do is he was telling me to create a space to become more aware of the love, grace, and companionship of God than the companionship, demands, and duties of life and others. I'll say that again. Creating space to become more aware of the love, grace, and companionship of God than the companionship demands and duties of life and others. And I don't know, I don't know if we caught uh, in my own story when I talked about going out to the lake, but can you remember how long it took me, Brent, to sit there before I finally felt like I was slowing down enough? You said like four or five hours, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, even today, like it may happen a little quicker. But if I go out to create some nice Sabbath, solitary silence and solitude, I, I, it's going to take me a few hours to get my whole self to wind down. I try to teach this to my disciples and students, and oftentimes they'll go try it, and they just can't even sit still for 15 minutes, like let alone three hours. Like I have to go sit on a mountaintop. I'll go sit out. I'll go hike in the forest out here on Moscow Mountain, um, and I'll just sit. And I'll, yeah, I'm moving around. I'm not like I'm sitting there like a mannequin doing the mannequin challenge or something out there. No, I'm just, it's nothing real super spiritual. It's just stopping. It's just getting away and just stopping and letting all of it. Uh, I once heard um, uh, there was a monk at a local monastery I used to visit. And he, he, he told me about, uh, and I think I read about this in a book again later. But they, they talk about, a, it's almost like you have a handful of balloons. 
You got this handful of helium balloons, spiritually speaking, as a pitcher. And you just slowly start to open your hands and the balloons just one by one start to fly away until you're left with that one single solitary balloon that God wants you to hang on to and see. I I hold on to that image quite a bit because that's my experience. I show up to this space that I've created with all kinds of worries and anxieties and issues and a whole handful of balloons. And as I sit there hour after hour, these balloons just one by one start to slip out of my grasp and I'm left with the one message that God wants me to hear. Um, I can remember sitting by the lake one day and three hours in with unbelievable clarity. I mean, unbelievable clarity, this overwhelming sense like, I have been neglecting my wife. Like I've absolutely been neglecting my wife for who knows how long. We're talking about months, months I've been neglecting my wife. And I remember like the clarity of that message was there the whole time. I just wasn't slow enough, quiet enough, still enough to hear it until I let all those balloons go. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's incredibly difficult in our culture. We don't know how to sit still. We don't know how to stop, but hear me. If you go to practice this, hours, like hours of just sitting there doing nothing before your brain finally slows down enough. Um, give it a shot. Uh, do what Bill challenged me to do and see what happens. Um, uh, the next one, Practicing the Presence of God. Small little book out there uh, by Brother Lawrence, an old monk, Uh Practicing the Presence of God. It is an it is an old classical work, but it is still fantastic. Um, it is not a modern work. It's not going to be entertaining in the same way that a modern book is going to be entertaining. But if you want to read old Christian classics, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence is a fantastic little read. But that discipline is all about learning to become aware of God as a constant companion staying in constant contact with God, realizing that when you're doing the laundry, it's a, it's spiritual work. When you're shoveling the snow here on the Palouse, that's spiritual work. When you're driving to and from, it's not just dead space. That can be spiritual space if you're simply aware of the fact that God's in the middle of it. Um, some of you have jobs that are just monotonous. I'm a part of an assembly line uh, I work over at SEL and assembly. That's That can be, Brother Lawrence said, this can be spiritual work. Um, this idea of becoming aware that whatever you're doing, wherever you're at, God's at work in it, and you can make this thing have all kinds of width and depth that uh, you just weren't aware of before. Uh, one of my other favorites, simplicity. Ugh. Man, and this is a big one for our culture. I find that we really enjoy this because we're so addicted to consumption and things and stuff that the moment we start to practice this, I find people actually have a a ton of fun with this discipline and actually find unbelievable freedom here. But simplicity is the idea of resisting the pull of complexity, acquisition and consumption and hurry through the intentional pursuit of a simple life. It's resisting the pull of complexity, acquisition, consumption, and hurry through the intentional pursuit of a simple life. 
This can be applied to our clothing, our dress, our eating, our transportation, our technology, our speech. Uh, we've been now in the Lenten season for quite some time, and a lot of us have been practicing fasting of different kinds. This is on some level, and we'll talk about fasting more here in a moment, but on some level, uh, Lent is often a season of a little bit more simplicity. Um, just just stop buying so much stuff. Stop making your... Uh, I remember Bill used to do this. I mean, Bill was such a mentor for me in these things. Uh, but Bill would go through these Daniel fasts, or he'd go through a whole month of just eating rice. Like that's what he would eat. Because it was just a discipline of his to just say, I'm... I'm going to I'm going to do this in this one area of my life where it tends to get so complex and so messy and so destructive and I'm just going to strip it down and I'm just going to make it simple. Um technology, my goodness. I think there's coming a generation whether it's going to be my kids or there's going to come a generation that is going to reject much of the technology that we're so addicted to today because they're going to want to practice simplicity. Um transportation uh I've had good friends, um, good students, uh, peers, mentors um, that have decided they're just not going to drive as much as possible because they want to practice simplicity. And they're going to use bicycles and they're going to use their feet and they're going to do... It's just uh, simplicity can do so much for us when it comes to speaking. Again, this is about... What is this about, Brent? It's about... Spiritual discipline. Sending yourself on the presence of God. Right, creating right. a space. Creating a space. This is all about... What is simplicity? Simplicity is creating a space for God to work. Um, that's what simplicity uh, can be. It can be one one more way to creating space. What is fixed hour prayer? It's creating a, a, a space. All these things we're talking about. Creating a space. Sabbath, solitude, silence. It's creating a space. And my belief is that if you do any of these things and create space, God is going to fill it. He may not fill it the way you think he's going to fill it, but he will fill it if you're paying attention. And he's going to do things. He's going to change. Uh, he's going to change things in your life. He's going to change you, and uh, he's going to. He's just going to uh, transform your heart through these things. So um, I move over to the next section. Uh, what I call some lifestyle disciplines. Uh, first of all, there could be generosity and secrecy. Sometimes those two go together. Sometimes they don't have to. Uh, but the discipline of generosity, um, I go in and out of this discipline in my life. I'll go through a season of generosity because I feel like I'm getting a little too close-handed. I'm getting a little bit too selfish. I'm getting a little too stingy. And so I'll go through a period uh, where I'm going to practice a discipline of generosity. I'm going to take whatever tip that I'm going to give the waitress, I'm going to double it. I'm going to do that for the next two months. Um, uh, and it's just going to be one small thing that I do. I don't know if Christians know this. There's a thing called tipping. It's, it's the thing you do at the end of the meal. I don't know if you know this. You can add you can add a little something to your check. Have you heard about this? Well, I have. Have you heard that there are a few restaurants in Moscow who are doing away with tipping? Go, go, sangria. That's right. Uh, I think that's a wonderful uh, a wonderful practice. But what I don't think is wonderful is that Christians have often been known, if you ask anybody in the food industry... You don't work on Sunday you afternoon. You don't want to work on Sunday afternoon because all the church people come and they are the worst customers. Um, they're the hardest to please and they are the worst tippers. And I think that whole thing is atrocious. Um, that is the most asinine reality uh, that we have in the kingdom. 
that we're known for being the least generous people. It's just, it's just so unacceptable. The, the discipline of generosity, um, is one that, that in my life, I know I have to come back to for seasons. And I have to say, when I see a homeless person, the answer is going to be yes. I'm not going to ask the question about what he's going to use it for. I'm going to go into a season where I'm going to practice generosity. And if somebody says, can I? The answer is going to be yes. If somebody says, do you have? The answer is going to be yes, if I have it. Um, I'm going to double my tips. I'm going to uh, give twice as much. I'm going to do whatever I can do to practice generosity. Um, and sometimes it will be tied to secrecy. And sometimes that's really good. But submission, oh, man. This is good for me, um, especially the way that I'm wired. Some of us have to work in jobs, uh, as an example, uh, where we don't agree with the leadership. We don't agree with our boss. We don't agree with our supervisor. We don't agree with the corporation. And, and it's one thing if it's like a moral issue, if it's like unethical. Like that's one thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where we have a disagreement in how we see the world. We have a disagreement in what we're pursuing and how we're pursuing it. Um, and sometimes those are great opportunities to practice the discipline of submission. Uh, I remember there was a season in my life and a ministry I was a part of where I didn't agree with the leadership, um, didn't agree with the leadership of the ministry I was a part of. Uh, and so I practiced the discipline of submission. It wasn't, it wasn't a moral issue. It wasn't like they didn't love Jesus. It wasn't like we were doing something wrong. It was just, I didn't like the values. I didn't like how we pursued those values. Um, but I wasn't in charge. And I said, okay, this is going to be a season of practice. I'm going to create a space in my life by practicing submission. And my prayer was, God, Jesus, I want you to teach me how to be more like you by shutting my mouth and doing my work with everything that I have and being submissive. For a guy like me, it's a big deal. Um, so I, I submit that to you. No pun intended. Uh, gratitude. So um, you like that? Yeah, that's pretty good. I wonder if JT still listens to our podcast. <laughs> oh, man. Shout out to the punster uh, if he's out there. Gratitude. Um I uh, love the practice of gratitude. Uh, again, from the Jewish world, uh, the Jewish world tries to say 70 blessings a day, which I don't know. Some people, that sounds like a lot. Some people, it doesn't sound like a lot. If it doesn't sound like a lot, practice it sometime. Um, because 70 blessings a day is a, just give thanks 70 times a day. That's a big deal. I usually, I usually get to like 12 or 15, 25 on a good day, and then realize somewhere along the day I stopped and I never made it. But 70 blessings a day just to practice gratitude, to become thankful. A great book. Um, oh, my goodness. We're going to have a really long list of book recommendations today. Uh, great book. Ann Voskamp uh, wrote a book, um, A Thousand Gifts. Um, wonderful book about Thanksgiving and gratitude and Eucharisteo. Uh, just just fantastic read. It would really help with that. So uh, you get that book for that. And then uh, lifestyle, a lifestyle discipline of meditation and memorization to be able to meditate on the scripture by putting it inside of you. Um, we like to study the Bible. We like to do Bible study. We like to read the Bible. We like to learn about the Bible. Um, uh, and my, my disciples even do some extra disciplines we don't even talk about on here, like writing the text. When we studied the Essenes, we went over to Israel and Turkey. Um, what did you think about the Essene lesson? You were there, uh, Qumran. That was probably the the most powerful lesson for me. Yeah, just a massive, um, the the massive work this community of people did, uh, committed to walking the path and knowing the path, 
and the work they did into preserving the manuscripts. They were the ones that were responsible for what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, so we took what we learned there, and I took back into my life the practice of writing the text, and I loved it. And so I started giving that away to my disciples, and they love it. It's probably the most popular discipline of my disciples uh, that anybody engages in. Everybody loves to write the text. One of the hardest ones we do is memorize the text. But the goal in my discipleship program is to get the text in us in as many ways as possible. And so we memorize the text because if I can commit that text to memory, if I have that text in me, I can meditate on that text. And if I have that text in me, God can use that text uh, in powerful ways to do things in my life. We're going to talk a lot more about that in Bema. Um, but if I have that idea as the rain and the snow, Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow falls from the heavens, it does not return to it without watering the earth, causing it to bud and to flourish, providing bread for the sower, seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So my word goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will always accomplish my purpose and the desire for which I sent it. To have a passage inside of you, always ready, that passage has the ability to go to work in my heart and in my life because it's in there. I've put the text in me. Now, having said that, one of the greatest gifts I was ever given was the teaching uh, from my rabbi, Ray, about how he memorizes. Because uh, when I was always taught about memorization, I always had the image of stacking. Like if somebody said, we're going to memorize the Gospel of John, I was like, oh my goodness, we will never memorize the Gospel of John. Because in my mind, I imagined and I pictured like stacking the memorization so that I could recite the entire gospel from front to back. I remember the day that Ray said, no, no, don't, don't memorize like that. Memorize the gospel of John by memorizing your weekly portion. This week, I'm going to memorize these 15 verses. And by the end of the week, I'm going to be able to recite those 15 verses. At the end of the week, if I can hit my goal, I'm going to put those verses away because I've done my part and now it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring them back if God wants them. But at least I've done my part. And I'm going to move on to the next 15 verses. And every week I'm going to do my weekly portion. I'm doing, I've been memorizing the text that way for the last, oh boy, since 2008, late 2008. Um, I've memorized the Gospel of John and then Deuteronomy and then Obadiah. I actually was able to do the whole letter of Obadiah, recite it from front to back. It's a tiny little thing, not that impressive. Um, then I went to Matthew. Uh, memorized Matthew. I was able to jump back to Leviticus. Um, and then we did the book of Jude, uh, which was also fun. I was able to get that one all in one sitting. Not another short little letter. Not that impressive. And then um, was it's, able to... It's not by how much you win, Marty. It's just whether or not you win. So That's right. Hey. And then I've been able to... I've been working through Mark. I'm in Mark right now. And I'll jump back to the Old Testament. And I'm just always going to be trying to put text in me. I've been doing that for the last eight years. And um, man, the difference that has made. And it's not about how much I do. I keep telling my students, I have such a hard time memorizing. They'll say, I keep telling them, memorize one verse a week. Just one verse a week would be 52 more verses this year than you memorized last year. Don't tell me that won't make a difference. Even one verse a week. It's just getting in the discipline of doing it every single day, every single week, creating a space and letting God move. Um, last one I have on here is spiritual direction and uh, spiritual direction is where you choose a spiritual mentor that you trust, not a spiritual mentor. You don't know, not a spiritual mentor. You don't trust somebody you trust. And you say, I want you to speak into my life. 
And if you say jump, I'm going to say how high. If you say I need to get this out of my life, I'm going to remove it. If you say I need to, but it's having a spiritual mentor that know that you believe knows you in a unique way that most people don't. For me, Steve and Bill were these kinds of mentors. When Bill would tell me he saw something in my life that I totally didn't see, I knew that he knew me well enough that I would, I would absolutely take him at his word and I would go, okay, that's in there. I got to go find it. Um, that's spiritual direction. All right. One last little set here. Three more disciplines, uh, fasting and self-denial. Um, like I mentioned before, we've been in the Lenten season now for a while. A lot of us have been practicing different kinds of Lenten fasts. That's a good thing. It teaches us self-control. One of the things that fasting does, I remember when I fasted before, um, people used to always talk about, well, instead of eating, you're supposed to pray. And I used to get like really frustrated because I would not want to do that at all. I would not eat and I would be like really cranky. Um, uh, I've done two like really long fasts. I've done two 40-day fasts. I've done one fast in the month of February, so a 28-day fast. Um, and yes, when I say fast on those, I actually mean food. It doesn't always have to be food. Fasting can be a lot of different things. Um, but those three uh, extra long fasts, uh, I fasted from food and did a liquid-only diet. So um, I had... Uh, juices and I tried to make sure I got my nutrients, lots of V8 fusion, go, go V8 fusion. Um, lots of that kind of stuff. Uh, a little bit of calcium. I got, I made sure I wasn't being stupid. I'm not talking about a supernatural fast where I only drink water. Uh, I, I made sure I got the nutrients I needed, but I wanted to train myself, uh, not just self-control, but fasting has this interesting thing. Brian McLaren. Ooh, another great book. You can link Brent, uh, finding our way again by Brian McLaren. Wonderful book on the spiritual disciplines. One of the things he said in there that just changed my understanding of fasting was he said, fasting does not create space where we're supposed to be more spiritual. Fasting connects us to our humanness, like our humanity, our brokenness. Like the whole reason of fasting, like the reason I would feel so guilty is I would fast and I would become consumed with food. Like all I want is a Krispy Kreme. I'm supposed to be super spiritual right now, but all I can think about is a jelly donut. Like, and I would get so mad because I'm supposed to be super spiritual. That's not how fasting works. And anybody who's truly fasted for more than just a short period of time, anybody who's gotten past that three-day mark uh, knows that fasting will connect you to your own brokenness and your frailty and how <laughs> like it will connect you to the dirt, the clay part of humanity quicker than anything else Um and so I don't practice fasting as a regular discipline. I know a lot of people that fast on Tuesdays or every, you know, whatever. I don't do a uh, a regularly scheduled fast. Um, not that I believe it's wrong to do so. But one of the things I discovered as I studied fasting in the scriptures is whenever people are doing a regular fast in the scripture, God critiques it. In Zechariah, when the people come and they ask, should we fast every week? God says, no, what I want you to do is I want you to live obediently. Um, Isaiah 58 is the, this is the fast that I have chosen to loose the chains of the oppressed, to feed the hungry. Like whenever people ask about, should we, should we have a regular, like God's like, no, I want you to live obediently. So I don't practice regularly scheduled fasting, but I do carry fasting around in my pocket. Um, and I like to use fasting whenever I get prideful. When I start to feel myself getting filled with ego and pride, I love to pull out a fast because a fast will remind me of how <laughs> how unimpressive I am, like how how lacking I am. Now, is this the right image to think of fasting as maybe revealing our weakness 
in a way that creates space for God to be strong in our life. Well said. Absolutely. And we use fasting in a lot of other ways. Um, we'll often use fasting as like a vending machine to like get answers from God. The reason that you, and you really don't see that in the scripture. There's like two instances in all the scripture where fasting is not connected to humility. Uh, and um, and uh, you've got humility and you've got mourning. Uh and there's only two instances where people are fasting and they're seeking the face of the Lord. And I don't think they're fasting because in fasting you find the answer. Like God's not a vending machine. It's not like you want an answer, so you fast and you pull the lever and God gives you an answer. The reason you would fast is because of what you just said. It empties, say it again. It reveals our weakness that uh, creates a space for God to be strong in our life. Exactly. So the reason that when we're wanting answers, we would fast is because when we want answers, a lot of the wrong stuff goes to work inside of us. And so we, we remind ourselves of who we are. We look to God out of the appropriate perspective. And in that, we often find clarity that does show us answers that were really there the whole time. We just needed to create the space to see it. So a lot of assumptions I feel like we make about fasting, like we're going to fast to prove how pious we are. We're going to fast to like all kinds of wacky stuff. That's just not what fasting is about. Fasting is going to connect you to your own brokenness. It's going to show you how ungodlike you are. Um, that's the whole idea. On the flip side, there's feasting and celebration. And that's the exact opposite. Like in our lives, we have to know when to indulge. Um, and some of us are incredibly frugal people and we never indulge. And I think, well, if you were to ever read the Talmud, the Talmud would say that's sinful. The Talmud teaches uh, actually that man will have to answer on judgment. This isn't the Bible. This is the Talmud. So take it for what it's worth. But the Talmud teaches that man will have to answer on judgment day for every permissible deed he did not indulge in. Like if it was permissible and you said no, the Talmud says tongue in cheekly, you're going to have to give an answer for why you didn't go for it. Because God wants you to remember the story is good. And so we have to feast and we have to celebrate. So on one hand, I have to know when to say no. I have to know when to say, I'm going to fast. And on the other hand, I have to know when I'm going to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy the $48 ribeye because we're celebrating an anniversary. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to get the filet mignon. I'm going to get the reserve bottle of wine, not just the, uh, the two buck check. We're, we're going to get the, we're going to get the, the real good stuff because tonight we celebrate like you have to know when to engage and when to pull back. And that kind of leads us to the calendar because the calendar is often what helps us do this. And we got some holidays, um, that we're kind of sitting right in the middle of, uh, we got some holidays that are coming up, um, in this season as Resurrection Sunday and Passover and different things. But the calendar, whether it's the Christian calendar, the Gregorian calendar, the Jewish calendar, the calendar often brings us to these places where it invites us to fast. I mean, consider Lent, right? Let's stay in the Christian calendar. Lent invites us to fast and then invites us to celebrate. So the calendar invites us into these rhythms. And what I love about that, Advent is a part of this swing. Advent invites us down as everything around us dies in the winter and everything becomes dormant. Advent invites us down into the cold, dark story of Christmas. And it's usually not dark in our culture, but we've talked about that before in Bema, or we will in the future. Um, like Advent invites us down into the manger, into the stable, into the 
pigsty, probably not a pigsty, it's probably a bad illustration, um, <laughs> invites us into the darkness and says, Jesus even can be found there. And we kind of stay in that wintry, cold darkness and Lent starts and invites us to kind of, we're still down in this dark place and invites us to be reflective and think about the things that need to die in our hearts and in our lives and to confess. And then as everything around us springs to life, resurrects, if you will, as all the world comes back to life, uh, as we celebrate Jesus coming back to life, all of a sudden we erupt in celebration. And as everybody goes back out to the fields, especially in an agrocentric culture, which we don't live in anymore, but as everybody starts to go back to work, back, we're now rejuvenated with life. Uh, the calendar helps us observe these, these, this sway to and fro uh, through throughout the world that we live in because we just we've shut that off in our life when it gets hot we turn on the air conditioner when it gets cold we cold we turn on the heater we just ignore the seasons we have daylight savings time we just we live in denial of any of this stuff and the calendar invites us back to a place where we quit denying the things that God has hardwired into creation and invites us into that all of these practices, I know this is like the longest podcast we've ever done. <laughs> so good, though. Um, this, uh, These are all practices that help us do what, Brent? Create a space. There are all ways that we create a space. And if we will pursue God by creating a space, he will fill that space and he will bear fruit in our lives. Now, if you go trying to bear fruit and trying to force it and control it, no guarantees. I don't know. I don't know if God will work in spite of that or not, but if we will instead create space for God to work, I believe with all my heart, he'll fill it and he will um, produce the fruit that he wants to produce. And I'd say you can even combine this stuff. And I, I guess I did this subconsciously, but now that we're going through this list again, or that I'm going through this list again, I'm realizing that I did a couple of different things when I was preparing for the trip. I did the, like the, uh, prayer hour thing. Uh -huh. I kind of did that with my, uh, scripture memorization. Ooh. So I'd go and I'd work on a passage for like five or 10 minutes. And then I'd come back like two or three hours later right. and work on it again. Bingo. And I had all six passages done in 48 hours. Like, yeah. When you Absolutely. go back to it regularly and it's just a few minutes at a time, you go back to it every couple hours, it goes fast. Yeah. Absolutely. These are these are you can mix and match, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can make up disciplines. I've made up disciplines in my life. I've got three or four that I didn't even talk about that we might go over in discussion groups. Uh three or four disciplines that I've just created. Uh so be be creative and do the things that you feel like you need to do to create a space for God. But above all create that space. And if you will, if you'll pursue God and seek him, I believe the scripture says you'll find him and he'll be in that space. You may be surprised at what he has to say. You may be surprised at what he looks like, quote unquote, um, but he'll be there. Sounds great. Well, if you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday and Pullman on Wednesday. We hope to hear about uh, how these spiritual disciplines are, are going for you, how you are creating a space. And if you're, if you're not on the Palouse, uh, give us some other people and talk about your experiences. Share those. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at BaymaDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.